This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hey podcast listeners, Mara Davis here. Here's an exclusive preview episode of the new series, Elizabeth I. It's the new podcast from Imperative Entertainment about a truly remarkable woman, Elizabeth Taylor the very first influencer. Katy Perry is such a fan. She is hosting this series and you will learn so much about this legend. If you love this preview, there's nearly 10 hours of audio from the full series available where you can binge right now. Just search Elizabeth I on any podcast platform or click the link in the description of this episode. But let's begin your preview right now. We spent a lot of time with jewelry, and it was really, really, uh, uh, she loved it. She just loved it. It was, it was a passion. She loved this jewelry because she, she was fascinated by these minerals, by these jewels, by the way that they look. She would take them out and, and, and just hold them and play with them. And from what I know she said much later in life how she always believed that she was, um, especially with her jewels, a custodian rather than an owner of these objects, that she, she appreciated their value and it, it, wasn't, it wasn't out of, let's say, like arrogance or selfishness. It was, it was, she just loved jewelry and she had the means to her and Richard had the means because he, he, he bought her, you know, a lot of her big famous jewels. The most important piece that Elizabeth owned was the Krupp diamond. It's an Asher cut. That's a 33 carat diamond. The Krupp diamond was owned by Vera Krupp, who was part of the Krupp family, who had been involved in, the, in World War II. They had supplied munitions to the Nazis. When Elizabeth got it, she just thought it was like really a big fuck you to, to, the, to the Nazis, to the Krupps. Like, now look at it. It's on a nice Jewish girl now. It was such a beautiful diamond. I mean, I think she felt like it had been released and vindicated. And, 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 and it was her, really her signature piece. I'm not sure Elizabeth would say that, but she wore it in so many photo shoots. She wore it every day, frankly. Uh, you know, she wore it when she went to bed at night. One jewel became so famous because of the story of Richard buying it for Elizabeth. The world of jewelry and press spontaneously and unanimously named it after them. The Taylor Burton Diamond. The first celebrity hyphenate was born. So this amazing 69-carat pear-shaped diamond came up for auction. And Richard wanted to buy it for Elizabeth. It's before he bought her the Krupp diamond, which became the Elizabeth Taylor diamond. He wanted to get it for her. And he told their lawyer, Aaron Frosch, that he could bid up to a million dollars. So he ended up not getting the diamond because he'd only allowed a budget of a million dollars. Only. Aristotle Onassis was bidding against him. I think he was trying to get it for Jackie Kennedy or Jackie Onassis at that point. 
Cartier bought it for $50,000 more. Richard didn't get it and he was devastated. And he said he has to get it for Elizabeth. And I, probably he was competitive. He offered Cartier $50,000 more. And they agreed as long as it could be left on display in the store window in New York and then in Chicago. And it's called the Cartier Diamond at that point. And we have a scrapbook that Cartier put together. Once Richard got it for Elizabeth, it was the Taylor Burton Diamond. Richard felt like Elizabeth had to have this diamond. And he was really proud to buy her these big jewels. Like It brought him so much joy. When somebody would go to the trouble to pick something special out for her that they thought she would love and they were right, that was the real gift. Barbara Berkowitz was Elizabeth's attorney for three decades and continues to be one of her great protectors. Barbara remained counseled to Elizabeth for the rest of her life, including providing legal services for the Elizabeth Taylor Foundation from its inception. I was once with her and I had to have her sign something. I love pens, whether it's a Mont Blanc pen or a Cartier pen. I like pens and I like fountain pens. So I asked Elizabeth to sign something and I handed her my pen and she started looking at it with her, her eyes and I'm going, oh, I'm screwed. And she's like, Barbara, I really like this pen. Well, I didn't want to give her my pen, but I'm like, okay, I'll buy you one for your birthday. She liked what she liked and she wanted it, but she was also very generous. She would send things to people. Uh, one of the jokes in my household at the time when I was living at my parents' guest house is jewelry would show up. Well, my father said, how in the hell are you ever going to get married <laughs> with her giving you all this jewelry? Who can compete with this? I wanted someone to try, but I was, I'm very happy with Elizabeth's jewelry. It wasn't just the jewelry. Elizabeth and Richard both had the passion of artists who appreciated great art by others. For Elizabeth, it was an eye she inherited from her father, the art dealer. The Taylors knew fine things. Elizabeth knew what was great, what was beautiful, and it fueled her. By surrounding herself with great art, from fashion to precious stones to masterpieces, she was also building a legacy of wealth. Like a boss. Ruth Peltison, the editor of Elizabeth's book, My Love Affair with Jewelry, saw it firsthand. We were working on the book at Elizabeth's home in Bel Air. And so in the home were, there were things like Oscars, statuettes, but there were a lot of paintings. And a lot of these paintings Burton had bought at auction or in a gallery. Now, as an art book editor, I knew right away what I was looking at. I walked in the room and I thought, oh, what did I say? I said, Shazam to myself. It was really extraordinary. And, you know, we had a pretty good sense. We'd done a lot of our homework before we went there. But Richard Burton was sui generis. He had what we call a natural eye. He had an instinct for beauty, an instinct for beauty. Richard, and I call him Richard only because Elizabeth did, Richard Burton could see a bracelet and know 
it was great. Yes, then he'd get the bona fides from the auction house. You know, how many carrots was the ruby heat treated or otherwise and etc. But he had an eye for beauty. And you can train a lot in someone. You can train someone to buy art. You can train someone to buy jewelry. You can train someone to decorate their house. But do they have a feel for it? Do they naturally come to it? He did. And I think that some of the most spectacular pieces, most important pieces in Elizabeth's collection were bought by Burton. And, um, and that's not even because, well, how long was he involved with her? It's because, yes, he knew Elizabeth loved jewelry, and yes, he loved gifting her with jewelry. But it doesn't mean that the gifts of jewelry were great. It just so happened that they were because Burton had that instinct, had that instinct. He had what we say that je ne sais quoi, I. So never for anniversaries, just when he wanted
Not all of her friends who gave her jewelry, expensive jewelry, did necessarily, but Burton did. And that was really thrilling. Oh my God, it's just piece after piece. I mean, historic pieces. You look at the diamonds, you look at the Gerard, you look at the, I mean, it just goes on and on and on. The VCA ruby and diamond ring, Chopard necklaces, the, oh, the Van Cleef and Arpels, the angel skin coral and amethyst suite, the Lamartine. Extraordinary pieces, extraordinary quality pieces. Oh, the Bulgari, oh my God, the Sugarloaf, uh, Sapphire Cabochon, the Sautoir, again and again, extraordinary pieces. That is the eye of a collector. Passion, instinct. Passion and instinct are pretty much what every collector needs. And after that, it's gravy. What can you afford? You know, that must have it. That's just, just that Burton, it seems to me, was full throttle. He was a five forward gear guy. And I think those two, they made great star power. They made great passion. And they shared that passion for the jewelry. And uh, I think Elizabeth learned a lot about jewelry from Richard. And she knew her own taste. I remember one day she asked me to get her, she had a diamond, a white diamond and colored diamond tromblant brooch that was uh, Bulgari. And I believe it was a gift from Eddie Fisher when she turned 30. So this was much later. She knew what she had. So whenever I would take something in, put something in the safe or take something out, I always looked at it first and to make sure it was there. And then I closed the box and brought it to her and presented it to her. And I showed her this brooch and she said, Oh my God, that is so incredible. And I thought, but this is your brooch. You've had this for decades. And I didn't say that, but I understood. It commanded that kind of attention. It, it was beautiful. And for her to just say, Oh, great, thanks. Let me just put it on. It didn't make sense. It was like every time you see something, you can still be excited about it. And Elizabeth wasn't shy about heightening things, you know? I mean, she heightened the drama. She heightened the fun. She heightened the glamour. That's who she was. Everything was heightened because she did that. But she was completely obsessed by, by everything, you know? Jewelry thing, but jewelry mostly. She had in in her in her house in LA. One day I arrived there, and she had this amazing makeup room. And there was a big table, and she pulled out all the jewelry for me to see lying on the table. She had, you know, about the famous diamond. She had fake ones made, I think, two or three, and I have one. I I never dare wear it like a joke. It's huge, this thing on my finger. I never would. I said, I'm going to end up being killed on the street. Somebody's going to think it's real. And so I've never worn it. I wear it at home and I show it to people. It's so funny. Yeah, she had that made. We went shopping. Okay. <laughs> on, I think it was on Rodeo. And Elizabeth wanted to try on rings. And she takes off the crup. And she hands it to the salesman who starts to shake. 
that he's holding the crook and she's nonchalantly looking at rings. Well, in the meantime, the security guard is locking the door and I'm looking around going, what are you doing? And you see outside, people are coming to the doors, the double doors of the store and he locks it so that there's not a stampede coming in and then it gets so many people, he closes the curtains. Well, I never even noticed there were curtains on the front windows of this shop. And I said, what are you doing? He says, do you see what she's wearing? He goes, I'm just one guy here. And the shop, the, the salesperson, as I said, is shaking. I said, give me the ring. So because I don't need some, some guy holding on to her ring. And she starts to laugh going, of course, the lawyer is going to take the ring. Of course I am. I mean, I want to make sure she gets it back. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Saks.com. At Saks.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Elizabeth said, you need to get a piece of jewelry every time you work or something that matters to you. I always ask for a piece of jewelry because I love jewelry, but it can't be commissioned. I mean, I know that my business manager is going to pay for her mistress's, his mistress's boob job, you know, or I'm going to send kids through college. There's all these, my agent, my lawyer, my business manager, there's all these commissions. I want something that is just for me. And so that I can look at my life and look at my career and look at all these beautiful pieces of jewelry and be able to say, I did this. This is only for me. And that is very revealing story in, you know, in, in Elizabeth's life. She loved jewelry from the time she was a child. I mean, it was a complete passion for her. There is incredible savviness in the trait of Elizabeth's, the jewelry gifts she acquired and required as part of her studio contracts, are the perfect example of the interwoven value of Elizabeth's nature as both a boss in business and a woman of passions. All of it was authentic Elizabeth. I don't know how this person came to us, but we ended up with this guy, Jess Morgan, as her business manager. He said, you know, Elizabeth doesn't realize this or remember this, but I was around as some part of her management team when she was with Richard Burton. And he said, she ran that show. Richard was doing whatever Richard was doing, but Elizabeth was absolutely running the show, which was really important information. Because it's not something Elizabeth would have talked about. And it, I think it's just important to understand, you know, Elizabeth, the, the Elizabeth Taylor Richard Burton show was huge. We know that. And it was global. Elizabeth was running that thing. We have some expense report, like financial records from that period. And the amount that they were spending was spectacular. But they were also bringing in a lot of money too. You know, coming off of Cleopatra, her next three films, she 
pulled in over a million dollars for each. So it was, she gets out of the studio system, has this massive success, and then incorporates her own production company to employ herself, essentially, and then loan herself out, you know, through her company back to MGM for a bigger payday. If you remember the original loan-out agreements when she was at MGM, between MGM and the other production companies, she literally flipped the script by incorporating her own production company, employing herself, and then loaning herself out, and ironically, back to MGM for the first two films she did after Cleopatra. These were The VIPs and The Sandpiper, both with Richard Burton, and both for which she earned over a million dollars. Elizabeth's success in business was forged on the obstacles she faced, beginning with the fallout over that massive payday Elizabeth negotiated for herself with Cleopatra. And what was the problem? What was the go-to excuse from the men who didn't want to pay her? Her scandalous press. Always the press. A forever thorn in her side. We were sued. What these people that sued us tried to say was that our scandal had kept the audience away. Now, come on. So we sued back. Richard was wonderful. He walked into the lawyer's office, which was pride, something or other and something or other. And he walked in and said, good, good day, Mr. Pride. Pride, as in cometh before a fall. Mr. Pride didn't get it. It was bullshit. And Elizabeth and Richard fought it till the end. She ended up making over $7 million with all of the overtime. But they took away the 10%. And they took her costumes away. So Elizabeth had negotiated 10% of the absolute gross. However, she lost it in the lawsuit. And they came in, all her, she had all the costumes, and they came in with a big truck and took them all away, but she kept a couple. <laughs> Two, three were hidden away. They may have recovered some of Elizabeth's gross profits, but the studio's overages from their poor management of the production stuck. Elizabeth made her money, had her freedom, ruled her burgeoning empire. And the reckless studio, the corrupt system that had literally owned her and controlled her and forged her rebellious spirit, finally broke. Well, it, what's the beauty and the poetry in the whole thing is that Elizabeth, you know, went from the studio system, which is basically where Hollywood had been, did Cleopatra... It broke Fox. They shut down production on everything else. They had Elizabeth's and Marilyn's films in production, but obviously Marilyn's went away. And uh, so it was the only, and they shut down the whole studio. There was only one building that was operating. It was the editing building because they had no money and they had to get Cleopatra out. But it made a tremendous amount of money. It was not a failure. Whatever her disappointments may have been, Cleopatra provided the vehicle for the Taylor Burton sensation. Elizabeth knew that every time she stepped out, wearing a piece of her jewelry, she would be photographed. 
As her fame continued to skyrocket, she was making her jewelry collection just as famous, right along with her. Whether or not this was a conscious effort, it turned out to be a highly skilled use of publicity and the first celebrity use of the press to build one's own brand. Elizabeth was just being authentic Elizabeth. Wearing her jewelry out and about was who she was, as a woman who shared with others all that she loved. And the press multiplied around her because of it. There was no ceiling to Elizabeth Taylor's fame, no exhaustion point, no oversaturation. This escalating fame, it was new. Other celebrities couldn't figure it out. And despite the press-concocted rivalry with another great beauty, Elizabeth was generous with her spirit when her rival needed it the most. It's why we have all those great photos of Marilyn towards the end of her life, because she was doing that to show that she was just as val valuable as Elizabeth Taylor. I mean, Elizabeth certainly wasn't jealous of Marilyn. Actually, I think she felt kind of... Um, kind of protective of Marilyn in a way, even though they didn't know each other. There was a person, but unfortunately he died last November. He told a story that Elizabeth had told him where she called Marilyn and said what the studio is doing to you because Marilyn stopped showing up on, stopped showing up on set. She was calling in sick and uh, saying happy birthday to the president on national television. She had called in sick. She'd been calling in sick, and suddenly they see her on television. So they fired her. And Elizabeth called her on the phone and said, Marilyn, I understand what they're doing to you, and I understand that it's wrong. And I'm willing to walk off this set of Cleopatra in solidarity. Marilyn said, you know, Elizabeth, it isn't really worth both of us ruining our careers, but thank you. And Elizabeth said, well, let me give you one piece of advice. When somebody's telling you something that isn't right, you walk away and you just keep on walking. She did Cleopatra because she asked for an astronomical amount of money and got it. She met Richard Burton. He's a movie star. Now she's in a marriage with a working actor and they made something like 13 films together, I think. And she also was making so much money that it was hard to say no. Now she had a partner in this. Now her husband was, an, was a movie star also. And they could make movies together. That is very different because Elizabeth could share this life with him. And because they became, I don't know, the first multi-hyphenate, they were doing this together, and it was all headline news, and they were knocking wars off the headlines. All of that was super fun with your husband. And Elizabeth was in control of her career. But there came a point where the marriage was obviously having trouble. Passion could not triumph over tragedy with the second great love of Elizabeth's life. Richard was drunk all the time. And Elizabeth told me that he got sober. And I, I, I think she didn't, she didn't get sober. She saved his life because he was going to die. And she convinced him to get sober, but she didn't quit. And they got divorced. 
and Richard was sober. They got back together and married for the second time. But what Elizabeth told me is that he started drinking again, and she couldn't go through that. Cleopatra and the birth of the Taylor Burton era was a fiery and full expression of the complexity of Elizabeth's character in ways that the press used and manipulated around the sensation of her life events, tragedies from which she survived and thrived. In this chapter, Elizabeth learned that the power of embracing her own authenticity as an artist, woman, and boss was the key to having control in a life of soaring fame. Throughout the ordeal, she remained true to herself and it would take her the distance. With this formula, when it came to power and influence, Elizabeth had longevity. But here's the thing about being a true influencer. At the level of Elizabeth Taylor and having longevity, the headwinds never stop. Despite all of her success from Cleopatra, the road ahead was not going to be an easy one. She would need to stretch and reinvent herself once again in the eyes of the world in order to tackle what would become her life mission, her calling. Elizabeth Taylor's greatest passion has yet to come. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen.